0: Meteorologists look at a handful of different models when making their forecast and odds are you've heard of at least two of them, the GFS and European model. The GFS or American model has been under some scrutiny in the community as it tends to be less accurate than the European model. One of the main reasons for this accuracy deficiency is how much money is the American government wanting to put into the GFS model to make it better. My guest today has an epic proposal on how we can make this happen. Dr. Neil Jacobs is the acting head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and he has already had his hands in the creation and improvement of weather modeling systems. So he's going to be talking about that today and taking that experience to the White House. Uh, Dr. Jacobs, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you. So you are currently the acting head of NOAA and the assistant secretary of commerce for the environmental observation and prediction uh, within the agency. Tell us a bit about what that role involves and how did you come about landing in that spot?
1: Um, so the the assistant secretary position for environmental observation and prediction uh, primarily deals with um as the title says, observation and prediction. And it ranges from, you know, satellites to in situ observations, or what we call conventional observations, Uh, numerical weather prediction, short range, long range, climate, uh, all the modeling you would think. It deals with a lot of HPC. um, And then all the research associated with that. Uh, As far as the acting head, um, in addition to my normal duties, uh, a lot of things dealing with uh, the fisheries and the ocean service as well.
0: Yeah. So you 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 really are playing a key role and a vital role in the, I guess, what we call the wet and dry side of the NOAA world in, in terms of uh, the weather and climate aspects, but also fisheries and ocean observations and so forth. So uh, a daunting task. Now, many fans of Weather Geeks may remember that you were on the weather geeks tv show discussing panasonic's weather model uh uh, dr jacobs is the former chief atmospheric scientist at panasonic weather solutions and he also chaired an american meteorological society or ams forecast improvement group so uh dr jacobs certainly knows the world of weather modeling he's also served on a world meteorological organization aircraft based observing system team so we are talking to someone that though he's really in an administrative role now he knows the nuts and bolts of modeling and uh, observations. I want to jump right in because one of the things that I hear quite a bit about as someone in the enterprise of weather from weather enthusiasts on Twitter is the whole European model versus the American model debate. Uh, This has been a long battle between forecasters, enthusiasts, etc., Let's just talk about it for a second. Uh, while a reliable model, I think people don't get that the GFS is still a world-class model. What is your take on where the American model stands as compared to the European model now? And what do you see going forward in the next zero to five years?
1: Well, it's, it, a lot of it depends on how you do the verification. Typically, most global models are, are verified using 500 millibar anomaly correlation. Um, and that's just correlating how well the model predicts, uh, you know, high and low pressures as compared to the standard atmosphere. Um, where we really see the European model pull ahead of the rest of the global modeling centers is, is primarily related to their data assimilation capability, which is four-dimensional variational assimilation, which is a little bit more sophisticated than, than what we're doing right now. Uh, we're doing uh, basically what we call 4D ensemble uh, variational assimilation. Um, without getting too technical, it's it's not quite as complex, um, and I think that's largely where you see the difference, as well as quality control of the data, which is sort of embedded in the data assimilation system itself. The dynamics and physics in the model are 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 fairly good. There's, there's work we need to do on the GFS on the physics side. Uh, we are in the process of upgrading the dynamic core to the finite volume cube sphere, which is going to be the biggest upgrade we've done to the, to the dynamic core since the, the uh, 1980s.
0: Now, I, yeah, you, someone listening to the podcast, and whether they're a weather enthusiast, a weather professional, or just someone that likes weather and, and tunes in, um, they might be asking, "Well, why? Why is the U.S. sort of doing this sort of, in, in, in your own words, sort of less sophisticated, if you will, assimilation technique?" Um, uh, what? How would you answer? Because I get that question a lot. How would you answer that question? Why? Why is there a different paradigm here in the U.S.? Do we have to? NOAA being we did, does NOAA have to think about other things just in buying big computers and satellites etc.
1: Oh yeah we do I mean NOAA itself is is an enormous agency we've got 12,000 uh, full-time employees and, and probably two to three times as many contractors um, a lot of people don't realize that NOAA actually has its own law enforcement agency for the fisheries regulation side as well as a uniform service side um, so you know, while it's really hard to compare budgets because um, it's not apples to apples, when it actually comes to the production suite that that NCEP runs for their models, uh, the National Weather Service runs all sorts of models, from you know the GFS, which is our flagship global model, to you know the high-resolution rapid refresh. And we've got several different models that we run for various reasons, whereas the European Center really only focuses on their medium-range forecast model and its ensembles. Um, that said, the difference between the 40 NVAR assimilation system, which is what we use in the 40-var system, which is what the European Center uses, is a lot of compute. Uh, true uh, four-dimensional variational assimilation is incredibly computationally expensive. Um, and so it demands a tremendous amount of computing capacity. The beauty of the 40 forty ensemble bar is that you can achieve almost a, a, a comparable result with much less computing. Um, and so it does come back to, you know, compute resources. Uh, the, on, that's on the operational, the production side. On the research side, um, the European Center has about five times as much compute for research as they do operations, whereas within NOAA it's roughly, the ratio is roughly one to one. Um, but that said, we have a, a tremendous amount of research that we do that, that they don't do. So again, it's, it's really an apples and oranges comparison.
0: And I want to make sure I amplify this some because I get in this discussion with people across the spectrum as well. It's something that's important. It's not that the U.S. is so much sleeping at the wheel. It's just that it isn't. It is an apples and oranges comparison because thankfully the National Weather Service and NOAA also invest in the upgraded uh, geosynchronous weather satellite technology, the GOES system that we have, the JPSS, the new dual polarization uh, radar system and the Weather Service Forecast Offices. So. Uh, You just don't buy big, fast computers. We know we need big, fast computers, and you certainly buy them, but it's a much more leveraged budget scenario, and I think it's important that people understand that. Now, having said that, Neil, do you agree that there are times, and I I think this is important, there are times where the GFS model outperforms the European model. I mean, I think people, that, particularly people that follow us closely, don't understand that it's not that the GFS is always losing to the European model. Is that correct?
1: No, the, yeah, that that you're exactly correct. The uh, the GFS is um, has outperformed uh, the European model on numerous occasions. Um, there were several events last winter with nor'easters where where the GFS performed very well. Um, and you know, the FV3 which is which is soon to be coming online operationally is is performing quite well too. So, you know, when when I said earlier about the the actual statistical Anomaly correlation scores that we sum over time; those those sort of wash out the big events, um, and. There are several cases where you will see the GFS outperform the European Center, but on average, ECMWF still has better scores.
0: Yeah, and absolutely. And I don't want to give the impression here that the we we know that on average the European model is still considered the sort of sort of what everyone's chasing, if you will. And I believe the UK Met Office model is also perhaps second or in the top two or three as well. Uh, which gets me to uh, the the new upgrades. Now there there have been activities to uh, upgrade the GFS, to go to a new system. I know that there were recently some delays. There were some complaints uh, uh, in the community. You were running, I guess, the old GFS and the newer system in parallel, and people were able to evaluate it. And I, I understand that there were some issues um, uh, in, in, in some types of events, no events and others that people were reporting in some users. Talk to us a little bit about that. And, and where are we going forward?
1: So there was a We've been running the FE3 GFS in parallel for for over a year, and we noticed, um, actually, thanks to some savvy folks in the community. So this um, this actually is is one reason why we really want to go in the direction of having a community model, because the you know it was the user community that actually pointed out the air and the snow depth variable. So there there was an error in how the 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 snow totals were accumulated through the microphysics in the Fe3 and it was outputting essentially erroneous uh, high values of snow. It would it would if basically anywhere in the vertical column if there was precipitation and any one level was at or below zero it would total the column as snow. Which you know as, as you know as as an atmospheric scientist, it could be grapple, it could be rain. It's, it's not uncommon to have, you know, sleet that melts into water. So, um, we were getting these very high snow totals, uh, simultaneously we were seeing a cold bias, which was, um, unrelated to the snow depth variable, but probably somehow played a role in exacerbating the results. Um, what had happened was there was, there was a bug and in, in an upgrade that we did to, to some of the radiation. And um, what happened was the model was essentially tuned with the, with the bug in it. Uh, so that was found and corrected, but then that required, of course, retuning and retesting. So a lot of that happened uh, right on the heels of the shutdown. And after a lot of going through the code, making sure everything was right, we've just now um, started the 30 day test, which we had originally announced a couple months ago. and you know if if everything checks out, uh, we'll we're looking to go live probably sometime in June with that.
0: and that that's an important piece of news here. we're We're taping this uh, in the first week or so of May and so uh, this is really important news and I know it's information that NOAA is just now starting to put out and so uh, for people that want to know what the status of the GFS FV3 is, uh, that that's that's it straight from the acting uh, head of, of NOAA. Uh, were there other sort of, those were sort of the main issues that, that you saw with the GFS FV3 in those parallel runs. Were there areas where you were seeing improvement or uh, above and beyond the GFS, the old GFS,
1: no, there, there's there was a lot of various improvements. So, um, you know, the FE3 was was typically outperforming the, the GFS on on track, on intensity. In fact, last year the FE3 GFS outperformed the European Center on on the intensity of predicting tropical cyclones. Um, so there's 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 going to be some some pretty significant improvements. I don't know that it'll be, you know, as impressive of overall skill scores as we would expect to see when we upgrade the data simulation. Again, this is, we're only upgrading the dynamic core. And while that's a big part of the model, um, we need to do work on the data simulation as well as the physics. And those, those, we're working on those actively right now. Those upgrades will be coming in the next year or two.
0: Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Dr. Neil Jacobs, who is the acting head of NOAA and the assistant secretary of commerce for environmental observation and prediction. He's formerly of the Panasonic Weather Solutions group as well, and I want to... its brain on sort of the, the public-private activities in these areas a bit later in the podcast uh, I, I, let me just give you a little of dr. Jacob's background he has a bachelor's degree in, uh, in mathematics and physics from the University of South Carolina and a master's and PhD in atmospheric sciences from the North Carolina State University and he's a very well respected colleague I, I, I know I was pleased to see uh, when his name was put in put forward here uh, in the NOAA Lee administration roles I was quite quite thrilled to- see that and I'm glad, still glad to see that as well. I want to talk about the assimilation. Uh, I, a lot of people may not know exactly what assimilation is. It's a big fancy word, but it really involves sort of updating and uh, model information with new information as it comes in. And I know that the European models and the American models very much depend on our satellite data, other people's satellite data, and other observational capabilities as well. I know you were involved in WMO's Aircraft-Based Observation Systems expert team. Talk to us a bit about the importance of observations to weather modeling, and then I want to transition a bit later into a discussion of uh, the Earth Prediction Innovation Center EPIC. But We'll get there, but uh, before we leave the assimilation area, talk about the importance of observations to modeling.
1: So observations are, are essentially everything in modeling. It's, you know, a numerical weather prediction is an initial value problem. So uh, it really depends on how accurate you can capture the current state of the atmosphere. And typically the way it works is you, you reinitialize and run a set of algorithms uh, in an, an interval of time. So let's say we rerun our weather model every six hours. And what we do is we will take the six-hour forecast from the previous run, and we know we're, we're six hours into the future, so it's not right, but it's probably fairly close. And then what we do is we take that file and we modify it based on millions of observations that are taken of the current state of the atmosphere, whether they're balloons or aircraft data or satellite data. And, and that process of modifying what we call the first guess with observations to come up with what we call the analysis or the, uh, or the start file is the most critical step of modeling because there's an infinite number of ways to get it wrong and really only one way to get it right. And it's, you know, it's kind of like cooking basically and better ingredients, you know, the better the dish is going to be. And if we do a really good job of building that start file correctly, then the algorithms can more accurately predict what the weather is going to be in the
0: future. Yeah, that's a really good summary of the process. I want to read something uh, to you and to the audience, and then uh, we'll uh, transition to a discussion of the Epic uh, Center Recently, uh, you testified before the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology subcommittee on environment to outline NOAA's $4.5 billion budget request for 2020. And now in that testimony, uh, one of the highest priority goals was to reduce the impact of extreme weather and water events to save lives and property uh, through the implementation of the Weather Research and Forecasting Innovation Act. Now, that, that all sounds fine. That's what NOAA's chartered to do. And uh, we know that there, there was a very important piece of legislation signed, the Weather Research and Forecasting Innovation Act, uh, I think a, a year or two ago. Uh, and the Trump administration's 2020 proposed budget for NOAA does include support for something called the Earth Prediction Innovation Center or EPIC. Tell us about what your goals are for EPIC and what it actually is.
1: So, so, Epic is is essentially a way to to manage a community development program for the modeling system. So, we're required by law through the Weather Act to make our model code available to the community. Um, but the the issue with that is the code right now, the, the GFS code, the fv3 GFS, it's hard coded for NOAA's machines. So if we put it on an FTP site and someone downloads it, they're really not gonna be able to run it. So what I wanted to do was have a way to sort of crowdsource model code development, you know, sort of like NCAR did with the WARF model. You know, is there a way that we can get this code into the hands of you know, PIs and postdocs and PhDs at universities or even in, in the hands of industry so that they could do collaborative development on the code? Um, and it actually solves several different problems that we were dealing with internally at the same time. The primary one was we had to port the code over to various compute architectures that the community has access to, primarily uh, commercial cloud vendors. Uh, so running this code in the cloud is is a reality now. We can run the entire fv3gfs from observations to output in. The cloud now. Not all clouds created equal. We're talking uh, high-performance computing architecture for cloud. Uh, so that that I think was was one achievement that we wanted to accomplish with with Epic. But it also gets us access to a lot of these individuals that normally wouldn't have access to do development work on our code. So one of the issues we were running into internally was that. A lot of external developers or contractors or even professors on sabbatical uh, would have to wait a really long time to get security clearances to log into our machines um, and that's just a, a paperwork process that we had little control over and the way around that was actually to just move the code development outside of of our machines into to the commercial cloud
0: now now are there uh, are there any security risk associated with doing that
1: there are Um, and so that you know anytime we do development work uh external to to outside of noah's firewalls we have to set up a very robust what we call secure ingest capability because we're bringing in code from outside and you know we don't know who's been touching it or doing development work on it but Having a very robust secure ingest is a much easier problem to solve than getting external individuals access to log into our machines.
0: Yeah, no, I could I could see that. So again, and and, and you heard Dr. Jacobs m- uh, mention the Wharf model, and uh, the Wharf is as an example of this sort of community modeling framework approach, if you will. I mean, I I've used the Wharf model in some of my research at the University of Georgia. Uh, the versions of the Wharf are running operationally in research capacity. You may have heard of something called the H Wharf. Uh, I mean, no, I I certainly can see the strengths of that and and you've certainly mentioned some of the sort of potential pitfalls or weaknesses of this community framework as well. A question that I have if you do have you know academics or industry or postdocs sort of tinkering around with the the GFS is there going to be a, a funding model set up to support this? Will there be grants from NOAA or the Weather Service to allow people to do this or is this just you know I've got some free time let me see where I can tinker around with that GFS?
1: Um, all the above. Uh, so there's there's an internal aspect to Epic for our internal research uh, needs, and then there's the external development. So Epic is largely going to be a research to operations code management and vetting process, where uh, anyone is is encouraged to. To submit enhancements, improvements, or upgrades to the modeling code and run it through what we call the, the research to operations funnel, which is a series of, of gates and checks that you know we look at the code, we look at some initial results, and but it's gotta have an operational outcome in mind. In other words, if someone provides an enhancement that improves you know the microphysics capabilities by you know five percent, but it increases the runtime by three hundred percent. You know, it's it's probably not going to make it through the funnel because it's got This this has got to have an operational end game. Um, there's there's a process in place for code management as well. You know, most likely something similar to GitHub where there'll be version control because we can't just have you know essentially the wild west of, of software development. And, you know, there'll be parallel runs. So this is the beauty of the cloud, both internal and external, is you can set up as many parallel runs as you want. Um, Right now, the issue we have on the research side, which I mentioned earlier with the one-to-one research to operations compute ratio, is that we are limited by a finite number of compute nodes to do research. So NOAA scientists have to line up. You know, they queue up in an order and one person can't conduct their research runs until someone else's runs are finished. And with, with the cloud, you, you buy basically by the node hours. So whether you're, you're buying, you know, 10 nodes for a thousand hours or a thousand nodes for 10 hours, it's roughly the same cost. But the difference is you do a thousand nodes at 10 hours, you finish the research a lot quicker. So the idea is if you have a lot of parallel experiments and assuming the results of one experiment don't depend on another one, you can conduct all these experiments at the same time. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with the acting head of NOAA. And NOAA is the parent agency of the National Weather Service for all of you out there that are listening from a weather perspective. But NOAA does so much more. Uh, Dr. Jacobs, one of the things I want to kind of pivot the discussion to now and kind of goes back to some of your roots a little bit is because you were the former chief atmospheric scientist at Panasonic Weather Solutions. There are a host of private entities companies uh Panasonic IBM and others that are running their own models now and you certainly uh were a pioneer in that at Panasonic Tell us about the landscape of the public-private partnership between uh, the federal government and companies and the whole weather enterprise. Uh, And and let's talk, let's kind of dive into that a little bit because there there are some that say, yes, this needs to happen. This is a no-brainer. We need to have it. But then there are others that say, well, no, I think that needs to be a federal public good, this so-called modeling and weather service uh, and, and, and capabilities. So just give me the lay of the landscape from your perspective.
1: Well, so there's. I would say I would divide private industry up in, into two to two tiers. You know, you've got your your front end users and your back end users. So there's there's what I would call a value add industry, which has been around for for many years. Well, people these, like
0: the Weather Channel, I guess, and even some of these companies that do specific forecasts.
1: Right. There's, there's a tremendous industry that's been built up on, on using NOAA and National Weather Service data and information to generate products and services for niche markets. Um, and, and that is, is a tremendous uh, industry right now, part of the weather enterprise. But then there's a smaller, um, I would say much more complex Component to the industry, which is the front end. And those would be the, the private companies that would provide either data services or information to NOAA and the National Weather Service to help further our mission. And then in some cases, there's companies that do both. They they provide, you know, support and data and such on the front end, and then as well as you know, operate as the value add on the back end. Uh, the value-add industry is fairly straightforward. They largely repackage output and resell it to niche markets. The, the front-end industry is a little bit different. Uh, there's, you know, the software side uh, and the hardware side when it comes to compute. You know, we rely a lot on private industry, the software engineers, um, some model developers, you know, including what I was doing when I was at Panasonic. Um, and then, of course, the hardware manufacturers, the you know, manufacturing, the interconnects, the chips, the processors, the compute that we use, as well as the various commercial cloud vendors and their various architectures that we use for compute and storage. And then there's the, what I would consider very upstream would be the private companies that are providing data. Um, and this could be you know, aircraft data that we, you know, we're exploring using various private satellite data feeds. Um, and this is an interesting paradigm shift for NOAA, where we're actually, instead of deploying and managing the observing systems ourselves, we're buying data as a subscription service.
0: So... But there, there are some, and I mean, I, I'm not sort of conveying my own opinions here on this. I'm just trying to represent as someone that's been a sort of a person that knows our community. There, there are some that say there's a danger in that, in that you know, profit margin could start to outweigh public good uh, and protection of of, of live and property. How how do you counter that 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 criticism from some in the community? Well,
1: so really what we want to do the way we avoid that situation and that's that could be a very real situation is we want to make sure that we don't find ourselves no and the national weather service in a competitive situation with the value add industry on the back end so we we've made it very clear that our mission is to protect life and property you know we're not doing forecasts for financial markets or, or other things um if we started doing something like that, the private industry would instantly view us as a competitor in the industry and treat us like a competitor. And when you're buying data as a subscription service to populate your models on the front end, it's not out of the question to have industry, if there's a company running a sophisticated weather model of their own, to try to buy exclusive rights to that information to, to essentially handicap their business competitors of which we could be one. So my goal was to make sure that we never found ourselves in a competitive situation on the back end market. That way we weren't viewed as a competitor and we could have, you know, access to the information that we needed on the front end to further our mission of protecting life and property.
0: Yeah, okay, that's a that's a really good way of looking at it. But I, I did want to raise that because I know that that is of concern to some and so this is, you know, one of the things I've I've observed over the last say 10 years is a, a bit more of a a a play nice perspective between the private sector and the public sector, but I I can remember times, I'm old enough to, and you've been around as well. I'm old, old enough to remember when this this was pretty contentious territory. And, you know, there's still some issues that need to be ironed out, but from your perspective, do you, do you and from an AMS perspective as well, do you think that uh, we've kind of turned the corner on, on, on how to do this from a public private venture within the weather enterprise?
1: I, I think so. You know, I remember back when the fair weather report came out, I think it was 2004, 2005. Um, and that was the, you know, the the point of that was to sort of define the swim lanes of, you know, where the weather service operated versus where, you know, industry would operate. And one of the things that that I've had a lot of positive feedback from on the industry side is that we have actively been going out when when we talk about our impact-based decision support services, which is sort of how we do support on the back end, telling industry various markets that we would not you know, provide services for because, you know, industry needs clarity. Their investors need to know is this going to be a sustainable business? And the last thing industry wants to do is invest in in a certain market and then have, you know, the National Weather Service come in and provide products and services for free and just put them out of business. So we've made it very clear where we where we would operate but more importantly, where we won't operate, and that defines the market opportunity for industry. Do you
0: do you see a role for and I, for the private sector? This is a tricky topic, and I'll throw it out there. If you you don't want to touch it, just let me know. But do you see a role for private industry in issuing warnings or or, or forecasts, <laughs> like in that in that type of uh, time frame?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean that's 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 that is a tricky question. I would you know, if when it comes to protecting life and property, I, I really feel like you need a single authoritative source, because the the only thing worse than not issuing a warning is having two competing warnings. Right. And that just, you know, that confuses people and creates more problems. Now, you know, most of the private industry companies that I that I work with that do issue warnings are very clear about, you know, these warnings are for, you know, niche markets, you know, special customers. And they also do a really good job of redistributing the warnings that we produce, you know, and they make it very clear that it's it's this is an official, you know, National Weather Service warning, you know, so the the public knows, you know. Who it's coming from and I think that's important
0: yeah I, that, and that's the reason I asked the question because I, I can I can see uh, a logic where we're gonna see a little bit more of these sort of niche warnings and uh, I, I am and this is just my opinion I am of the opinion that I, I and I think you echo this that uh, we need a single authoritative voice on these uh, some of these warnings that come for hurricane warnings or tornado warnings or from SPC or HBC so uh, I want to get your thoughts on, on another aspect of the prediction weather prediction and weather warning process. I know the Weather Service is going towards impact um, um, decisions and impact based decisions and so forth and that requires a good deal of understanding of sort of the social sciences of how people respond to this more technical information. Uh, Where do do you see things headed in terms of the the modeling weather warning communication world of NOAA in that regard?
1: really in the direction of social sciences so this was something that that has has fascinated me to really learn over the last several years because coming from a modeling background i was always just focused on improving the forecast skill improving the modeling you know if we could make the model better we would save more lives Um, and the models are getting better and what we realized was that you know we can improve the skill of the model but we're at a point now where we really have to work on the social science aspect of how we convey this information to the public because humans aren't necessarily rational creatures and it really depends on how we convey the information you know if if we give someone enough lead time for warrant, for a tornado warning you know we're always trying to increase the lead time but there's a lot of social science studies out there that show if if you give someone a lot of lead time they might not immediately take cover, you know, they may go get in their car and drive to the school to try to get their kid out of school or something. And that, you know, exposes them to tremendous amount of risk. You know, the other thing is how do we convey impacts of landfalling hurricanes? Florence was a great example. You know, everyone saw that it was being downgraded from a four to a three to a two. uh, And they hear, you know, oh, you know, it's being downgraded. And so, you know, they're less inclined to, to evacuate. And what we were trying to convey to the public was, you know, look, we realize the winds are going to be downgraded from a four to a two, but the storm's going to sit over the Carolinas for three days and dump three feet of rain. And if you look at where a lot of the loss of life was, it was flooding related and it wasn't just flooding related. It was fatalities of people in their cars, you know and we always hear this turn around don't drown and you can't say it enough but people still don't adhere to to pretty straightforward warnings you know it's water that actually really um, has the highest toll uh, with landfalling hurricanes you know so how we convey this message um, to the public is extremely critical. And that's where the social science component fits into the watches and warnings.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree completely with you. And I'm glad to hear that you are have been briefed and are, are kind of up to speed on that, because I think that's where the new frontier, I mean, we'll, we'll certainly have some new areas of improvement with modeling and satellites and radar. But I think the real frontier, in my view, is in sort of understanding how people consume this information. We're about to wrap up this discussion with Dr. Neil Jacobs, acting head of NOAA. But before I do, I mean, I'm always very cognizant of the people uh, of the National Weather Service and NOAA. And uh, I know that both you and and, and Admiral Gallaudet have uh, served in various capacities while you've been at NOAA in this time where, where there's no permanent NOAA uh, administrator at this point. But uh, you all have been serving ab- ably. And I let me just say on behalf of the weather community, um, Neil Jacobs is a very capable individual, as was Admiral Gallaudet before that. So the agency is certainly in good hands in doing its thing because they're professional people at all levels in the agency um how, how how's the, the the national weather service in terms of staffing i mean are we, i mean i i ask this because i, I want to know um you know are, are the offices are, it seems like there's been a lot of hiring actually in the weather service so are we moving to a point where most of our forecast offices are are healthy and, and staffed up
1: we we are definitely headed in the right direction um, th- this uh, the the FY18 was the first year since 2011 that hiring had outpaced attrition. Um, we did take a hit during the shutdown, uh, primarily because the shutdown occurred at the end of the year. And typically, a lot of people, if they're going to retire, will retire at the end of the year. So, you know, we had a lot of folks that were retiring that we were unable to to fill those positions because the shutdown spanned across you know the the change in the year there so we're, we're still in the process of digging out of that hole but we're at roughly 91 and percent so that's that's you know, that's definitely headed in the right direction. So I'm quite pleased with that.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm going to give you the last word as the acting head of NOAA. Dr. Jacobs, what what, just what would you say to those weather enthusiasts, weather geeks, uh, the American public uh, as as you know, as we exit out in this last one or two minutes?
1: Uh, just that, you know, I'm tremendously proud of this agency, that the people here, they, they really care about what they do. They're they're phenomenal to work with. And it's truly an honor and a privilege to have this opportunity to work with a team of such great public servants.
0: And I think we'll have to end it there. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us on both now the TV version of Weather Geeks and now the Weather Geeks podcast as well. We We really have enjoyed having you and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. And I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you all for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, Make sure you tell your friends about it and make sure you subscribe as well so you don't miss new episodes that come along. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher and all podcast outlets. And also you can find find us at WeLoveWeather.tv. Thank you once again and have a good day.